Well, Mr. President, may I begin by saying what an immense pleasure it is to see you in the chair, the great Hackintosh who began his campaign hacking my wife, who was last regularly in this chamber in 1992, has now spectacularly succeeded getting elected, if you remember, to uh, promising to give scholarships and, and YouTube channels that would help people learn to debate and enhance membership rights. And I, I've been looking around, I haven't seen all of those pledges yet delivered, but he still has another week in the job. And don't worry, Charlie, if you don't complete it in the week, you will be eminently qualified then for a position on Keir Starmer's front bench. So it's, it's very nice to see you here, and it's also a great pleasure uh, to be able to acknowledge the other speakers. Uh, beginning, of course, with Chloe on my side, who's just shown me the, the most extraordinary thing. She, she tattoos every position she's held here on her ankle. Now, I was glad to see, because I, I was thinking chairman of consultative committee, but actually she's, she's abbreviated it. Chairman of consultative committee chief, you know, of the Oxford Union would have been a bit much, but, but let's see if we, we can get some more tattoos on there uh, before the term is over. And, of course, my old friend uh, Juan Davila, who was president, as you heard, last term of Alca, having previously twice withdrawn his campaign. Now, malicious wagging tongues will have you believe that this is because on both occasions he was seduced by the other candidate. I, uh, and I've met both the other candidates, but I, I, I prefer to believe that actually he's just fundamentally a great gentleman. Uh, and, he, and he stepped aside. Think of him as a kind of a negative Boris Johnson, as it were. You know, the, the former PM is, is busily peopling the country with his platinum-haired Targaryen children. Uh, Juan is still uh, an old-fashioned gent. And you can hear that old-fashioned British sensibility in the awkward and strangled cry that he has made his campaign slogan for tomorrow's election, namely, come. <laughs> and, uh, did I get away with that? His parents are in the room. Um, and of course, very nice to see, to see Disha. Um, Disha, as you, as you just heard, dropped economics. You heard it in her speech. And it, oh, either she dropped economics or economics dropped her. There's often a kind of, oh, it's not you, it's me. But, but I, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad that you've done so, probably, Disha, to do something more useful, right? Uh, unlike Jonathan Portis, who went on, as we heard, to become the chief economic advisor at the Cabinet Office under Gordon Brown, and therefore, I think, has done more to reverse growth without the assistance of a major pandemic or war than anyone else <laughs> in the country. Uh, look, ladies and gentlemen, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, this is a debate we would not be having in Lusaka or in Lagos or in my native Lima. Being able to talk about other things mattering more than economic growth is a great first world privilege. We're sitting here warm and well-fed because we're benefiting from decisions that have put us into the place where we can say, as every previous generation has, there are more important things than the material prosperity of a society. Aren't we alienated by all this money grubbing? Do you know what? Every generation has said that. Going back at least to the Roman Republic, and every generation, including this one, thinks that we are the generation that gets to draw the line. Because the, the progress up until now has seen that today's luxuries become tomorrow's necessities, by all means. No, indeed not, and I'm, uh, thank you, I will come on to that, because the, the greatest inequality is precisely in the places which have the greatest poverty, and the, the best way to equalize them, as I'll come on to in a moment, is 
to spread the wealth. But the point I'm making is that every generation says, we, we've reached enough. We've reached this point of saturation. And there is a certain presumptuousness in assuming that it falls to us to make that call. Look, here's the thing. Growth is an extraordinary magic wand. It's like that, you know, that sonic screwdriver that Doctor Who has. I'm never quite clear how it's supposed to work or what it's supposed to do, but it opens every door. And it does the most incredible things. And growth is that sonic screwdriver, right? It gives us poverty reduction. It gives us maintaining a congenial human habitat or saving the planet, if you want to put it uh, more briefly. It gives us time and quality time. And indeed, it gives us equality. How do I say that? Well, first on poverty reduction. Look, in 1990, the United Nations set itself a target of halving absolute poverty or extreme poverty defined as people then living on a dollar a day in 1990 prices, in 1990 price, right? That was 36% of the world population in 1990. And just before the pandemic hit, it had fallen to 8.4%. And where were the falls sharpest? Precisely in those Asian and African economies that integrated into the global market system. We're not going to be able to tackle environmental problems without wealth. We're not going to be able uh, to preserve habitats or develop uh, strategies to reverse carbon emission without wealth and prosperity. Here's a, a fact that is little known. Since the 80s, we have, as a planet, seen a net reforestation, reforestation of an area roughly the size of Alaska. But that reforestation has happened overwhelmingly in the wealthy parts of the world, above all in North America and Europe, enough to offset the continuing deforestation in Indonesia, Brazil, and so on. Why? Because when you get to a certain level of wealth, you don't need slash and burn uh, agriculture. You don't need uh, firewood for cooking. If we want to help the Brazilians and the Indonesians get to a place where they don't do this anymore, the best thing we can do is to raise GDP. And if we want to preserve habitats, the best thing we can do is to allow animals to live next to wealthier people. You know, 50 years ago, lions, tigers, and wolves were all endangered. What's happened now? Lions are still endangered, tigers are flatlined, wolves have seen their numbers explode. Why? Because lions, by and large, live in poor countries, tigers live in middle-income countries, and wolves live in rich countries. Wealth gives us time. One of the arguments that one hears over and over again is people say, well, okay, maybe efficient, but it isn't, the, it isn't what really matters. What about the things that are really valuable, like spending time with your family or listening to good music or going for a nice walk? My friends, it is GDP growth that gives us those opportunities. The fact that you have a dishwasher and you don't need to do all the washing up by hand means you can go for that nice walk in the country. The fact that you can drive to work instead of taking two buses and walking means you have time to listen to that Beethoven concert. The fact that you don't need to spend seven days a week just to put food on your kid's table means that you have the weekend to play with them. And I want to make this clear. Those of us on this side are not saying that equality is a bad thing. There's loads of evidence that more equal societies are happier. But the way to get to equality is to expand people's opportunity. You look at the countries that are the most unequal, measured by the Gini coefficient, you measure it by, uh, as we heard from Disha, the, the, the amount of wealth owned by the top 1%. What are the, the most unequal countries in the world? It's Mozambique, it's Zambia, it's South Africa, Suriname, right? If you want to tackle inequality, then allow people to get rich by removing barriers. And that's 
the miracle that has seen our societies reach this pinnacle of literacy, longevity, health, and happiness. When civilization began, to a single approximation, we were all in bondage. Oppression, slavery, and serfdom were almost universal. We all lived under kind of slave empires, and that was true until an eye blink ago. When this extraordinary revolution happened, and we moved from status to contract, and people were able to make freestanding agreements, one with another, rather than having their position defined by birth or caste or status. And that meant that for the first time, the way to get on was not to suck up to the people above you, to the kings or the commissars or the high priests, but to produce things for the general population. The great economist Joseph Schumpeter said the achievement of capitalism is not to provide more silk stockings for princesses, it's to bring them within the reach of factory girls. We heard about trickle-down economics. I've got to tell you, no economist of any mainstream school has ever argued anything so absurd as the thought that you enrich the poor by giving the rich more money to spend on their swimming pools and Lamborghinis. The phrase was invented by a speechwriter of FDR's in 1930. It was a grotesque caricature then, and it has remained one of the most enduring zombie arguments for the intervening hundred years. You Google uh, trickle down, you'll get it, uh, you'll be prompted with rebutted, fake, you know, false. You'll, you will not find a single person arguing for it because no one has ever done so. What we believe in on this side is trickle up. The way that you enrich yourself now is by offering a service to everyone around you. Ours is the first society that has structured the incentives so that instead of exploitation, you prosper by offering a decent service. A final point. I don't think that the people on this side can really believe what they're saying. And I don't think that if you walk through the eye door this evening, you can really believe it. And here's why. If you did, you'd be behaving differently. What you spend on your iPhone would feed a family in the favelas. What you spent on your last pair of jeans would have paid for a cataract operation and given some guy in the DRC his sight back. Now, you could take the line that, yes, equality is so important, we should all give away what we have. Like the unfortunate guy in Mark 19 who says, what do I need to do? Jesus gives him the pretty tough advice, if thou wilt be perfect, sell that thou hast and give to the poor. The guy can't do it. And neither can most of us. And I think there's a reason why we don't. Because deep down we know that even if you did that, even if you sold everything you had, you would not end poverty. All you would do is add one more poor person, i.e. yourself. The real route to ending poverty is removing obstacles and spreading opportunities. The way people get rich every time, in every age, in every nation, is through secure property rights and free contract and personal autonomy. So, when you vote tonight, vote for freedom. Vote for opportunity. Vote to extend to that 70% of humanity who can't yet afford washing machines the same privileges that we take for granted and that allow us to sit here warm and comfortable and scorn the miracle that has brought us to our present prosperity.